The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. It is such a joy for me to be here. Uh, the last five months, I have buried myself in this book. The Lord's opened the door for me to uh, do a series of projects, um, writing projects on this book. And uh, what you have in the big packet, not the handout packet, but the, the big packet is actually the fruit of my last five months of study. Um, it was originally supposed to be for the brand new NIV study Bible, which is going to be coming out in a couple of years. How many of you use the NIV study Bible? A few? Okay. Uh, my dad's used it all of his life, and uh, they're just as they uh, just updated the translation in 2011, they're coming out with a, a full updated study Bible. So I'm doing the notes for the for Zephaniah in that, and but these are there's 14,000 words in here, and I'm supposed to give them 3,000. So just my little introduction that's a page that's two pages long is 1,500 words. So I've only got 1,500 left, and I don't know what to do. Um, so anyway, Thursday and Friday of this week will be my cut down day. I've got to drop out 9,000 words, but you get the. You get the whole thing. So it's, it's just targeted. It's NIV study Bible level, it's, which means my seventh grader is supposed to be able to read it. Um, now, if you can't understand it, it doesn't mean that you're not past seventh grade. It means that I haven't done my job. But I've worked to try to make it, uh, make it clear. And I've put in here um, what I think I need to know to understand what this book is about. So... This is supplemental material for you brothers to take home and further your own study. If the Lord would lead you to do a sermon series on Zephaniah, which I hope you'll gear up out of the, after these five hours we're going to walk through. It's, it's only 53 verses. We get to spend five hours in 53 verses. And uh, I, I hope you will be equipped and feel like this is a book I want to preach. Jesus is made much of here. Uh, the gospel is exalted here. And I want to uh, let my people know more about this prophet that very few people even spend time to read. Um, so this packet is for you. But this is the one we're going to use during the next five hours. And uh, it's got lots of space for you to fill in gaps. Um, I'll have the ESV and the NIV side by side. I don't know how many of you, when you've prepared a Sunday school class or prepared a sermon, you actually look at different translations. Um, for the most part, what we're going to see is that, wow, they're both saying the same thing, which is really a good thing. That's what we would want to see happen. But there's a couple points in the book where we're going to see, huh, the NIV guys and the ESV guys really went in different directions here. Um, here, mighty one is interpreted as a warrior who's going to be defeated from Babylon by God. And over here, Mighty One is actually viewed as a title for God Himself, who is the Mighty Warrior and who's going to defeat Babylon. Well, which is it? I mean, that's a kind of a difference. And so we're going to see that, the NIV and the ESV. There's a few differences. Um, I encourage you to have your Bibles open or you can... Um, 
have your Bible here, but at times we're going to look at other passages and I'm going to ask you to help me out. We're just going to walk through these verses. Um, when I taught at Northwestern for the four years I did, Northwestern College, University of Northwestern St. Paul, um, I had the chance to teach through the Minor Prophets ten times. When I arrived in 2005, I maybe had had one course on the Prophets in my life, and Zephaniah um, knew very little about him. But now I've got to teach these college students, and I've got to stay ahead of them, you know, just a little bit. Um, Matt's wife, actually, if I'm right, was in my very first Minor Prophets class at Northwestern. And I was telling Tom, I felt, feel really bad for her because, um, I mean, I poured my heart into it, but usually new professors fresh out of school assign way too much work and are a little disorganized. And I was probably both. But uh, I, I'm also confident she met the Lord there. Um, I did, and the students did. But in teaching through all 12 books 10 times, this is the book I fell in love with. And I said way back then, if I could write a commentary on any of the minor prophets, any of the 12, this would be the book I would love to do it on. And so once this NIV Study Bible Project is done, I get to write a 150 to 200 page commentary on these 53 verses, which is crazy that I'm going to have that many more words than God gave us. Uh, but I, I have to unpack it, right? Um, I have to unpack it. And, uh, but why was I drawn to this book? I was drawn to this book because it broke me every time I read it. This is not a book that lets pride stick around. This is a book that moves us to radical dependence and humility. If you enter into this room with a high view of yourself... My guess is if you allow God to work in the next five hours, um, He's going to put you more where, where you need to be. And that's what it did for me when I taught it. Not only that, it has a lot to do with the future. And God gives us something. He tells us in First Peter chapter, sorry, Second Peter chapter one, verse four, He has given us His precious and very great promises so that through them, we may partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. So let's, think, let's listen to that. He's given us promises so that as we put our hope in the promises of God, what we hope for tomorrow will change who we are today. It'll make us more like God and move us away from sin. He's given us His precious and very great promises so that through them we may partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. Desire. Our life is about desire. We always do what we want to do most. And that's why our hearts are, the, our hearts are a desire factory, and we're born with hearts that don't desire to please God. And that's why He needs to give us a new heart, to get new desires. Desires are not bad. There's been times where I've been under teaching that said, you need to not desire anything for yourself. But I don't think that's healthy. The problem with the world is not that people desire. The problem is that they desire the wrong things and they begin to settle for things less than what God wants for us. We're a people that crave. We hunger. We want. And 
God sets up a world where he gives us promises. He puts something out in front of us, and all the while there's lies that are coming our way, other promises. That's what sin does. It promises a better tomorrow, or at least a better tonight. And it tries to create desires in our soul. Hungers, wants, and we'll either go toward those desires of sin, or there will be higher, more compelling desires that will draw us away from sin toward God. This is a book about desire. It's about satisfaction. How many like to be satisfied? God's going to paint a picture for us in this book that is absolutely beautiful. It's radical satisfaction, like higher satisfactions than we can dream of, almost. And God is laying it in front of His people and saying, do you want it? The pure in heart will see God. I enter into Target, and I walk down the aisle to pay my bill, and there's Cosmopolitan Magazine just staring at me. And it's not just a magazine, it's images calling for me to desire It's making promises. Just look. It'll satisfy you. Nobody's looking. You'll be okay. And in that moment, what do I have to do? I have to allow my heart, allow my desires to to latch on to a promise that is more beautiful and more precious like the pure in heart will see God. Do you want to see me, Jason? Do you want to see me? Yes, I do. Then the pure in heart will, will see me. And all of a sudden, I have, I have a power in my soul that will move me away from these images that are not good as I focus on the promise of God that He's set before me. Because what I hope for tomorrow, like seeing God, will change who I am today. It'll make me a different kind of person. But it's not only the positive cravings that work for us. The promises of God are not only blessings, they're also curses. And both the old and the new covenants are loaded with curses. And sadly, in the old covenant, the curses were given to a people for whom dread was not birthed in their soul. They didn't fear God enough. And in Romans 3, Paul says that's the problem with the world. They don't fear God. So in Philippians 1, Philippians 2, 12, what does he tell us to do? Work out your salvation With fear and with trembling. For it's God who works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do you recognize the bigness of God? He's the one that we need to tap into and it's supposed to move us to this tremblingness about who He is and about what this whole walk with Him is about. Sin is so serious and sin is deadly. And the new covenant is filled with warnings that are supposed to work. And that's the gift of the new covenant, is not only does God give us the warning, He gives us the power to feel the weightiness of the warning. So that all of a sudden we put our dread in the promise of God, knowing that if indeed I run from God, what's He going to declare of me? I never knew you. They went out from us, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, Because they were not of us. Why did they leave? Why did they fall away? Because they were never of us in the first place. I don't want to be among those of whom God says, you were never part of my covenant. The warnings throughout the New Covenant, throughout the New Testament, are there as gifts of God. They're promises about what could be if we run from God. And so what do they do? They 
It's like we're driving the road and we know if we cross that yellow line, as weary as we are, we're putting ourselves in a higher level of danger. And so the, the reality of what will come if keeps us. I mean, sometimes it's rolling down the window and sticking our head out, you know, trying to keep on this line because we don't want to swerve. So not only are promises of blessing, gifts of God, warnings of curse are gifts of God. And if you're a true believer, you will hear the warning and it'll move you away from sin and help you cling to the beauty of Jesus. So this is a book that has both sides. And it's the presence of the second one that I talked about, the presence of curse that often makes us feel like we don't want to go back to these prophets. They're just filled with smoke, man. You know, we, we can smell it. It's all over and it's judgment this and cursed are you and judgment day is coming. But there's more than that in the prophets as well. And I hope we're able to celebrate both. But I want you to see the, the benefit of both. So I'm going to pray again, and then we're going to just open up our word to Zephaniah 1, verse 1. Dear Father, how much we need you. I ask for your spirit to anoint these moments. Fill us with your Spirit, granting us eyes that we can see and ears that we can hear, hearts that are not ignorant, but know you. You promised that in the new covenant age you would teach all of your own, and they would come. You would open our ears that we could hear your sheep, hear your voice. They know you, they follow you, you give them eternal life and they will never perish. So may we be among those who are hearing and following. Help us understand how this book, written so long ago, was written for us. We can read it better than the original audience was able to because most of them were deaf and dumb and dying. And you've given us life. It's part of our word. We don't know it as well as other parts of the Bible, but we want to, and we're starting out these days together asking for you to illumine us from your book. Give us light. Let us have an encounter with the living God now manifest in the resurrected Messiah. May he be more king of our lives. May he have more control of our thoughts. May he guide more of our perceptions. May he influence more our heart from which flows all things, including our speech. May we grow to be better dads, better husbands, better neighbors, better workmen, better students better pastors, better churchmen, all because you encountered us, because you chose to meet us. We cannot manipulate you, and this is not an attempt. We come as beggars needing to hear your word, and it's only if you let us hear it that faith will be generated. 
And without faith, it's impossible to please you. So we're crying out, work in us what is pleasing in your sight. To the glory of your Son. Amen. So I encourage you guys to have your handouts. Track with me. Take notes. And we're going to walk through step by step. There is a three-part outline to this book. And... I am, so this is Jason. Um, This is all coming from my own study, how I'm understanding this whole book to fit together. Um, There's a superscription, which is a fancy word for the title, but I had superscription, setting, and essence. So... It just kind of sounded better that way. Um, But superscription to the summons to satisfaction. That's what I've tagged this whole book. This book is a summons to satisfaction. Now, if you look up at the screen, there's a picture. Um, When my wife was in junior high or high school, walk through the Bible ministries came to her church. And has anybody had any interaction with walk through the Bible? And they had an image like this and then sign motions to remember every book of the Bible. And you just went through, and they threw a picture up on the screen, and this is Zephaniah, and they said, this is about, the main theme is, the day of the Lord. Okay, so they tried to capture, what is this book about? And they say it's the day of the Lord. And if you read almost any commentary, that's what they're going to say this book is about. And I'm going to say, not quite. The day of the Lord simply provides the setting for the summons to satisfaction. The goal is not just to depict the day of the Lord. The goal is to get people, in light of the coming day of the Lord, to live in a certain way in the present, in light of that future. And so he's going to call them in a way that perhaps no other book in our Old Testaments does. This is a book about basic Yahwism. Can't call it Christianity yet. But for Zephaniah, this is about basic messianism. How was he calling people to hope for the Messiah? What did it look like in his dark age? And he just takes them back to, I mean, this is the lowest level basics. If if it was a 101 brand new believer, this is where we start. And you'll see why um, this book provides that kind of kickstart. So, we begin. Three parts, superscription, setting, and essence. We're just going to be walking through those. We begin in the superscription. It's just the title. It tells us about the nature of the prophecy, the messenger of the prophecy, and the time of the prophecy. And this is going to help set a stage. Number one, the word of the Lord. No small thing. This isn't Zephaniah speaking on his own. He's merely the messenger. He's an agent of a word from God. The very fact that God is speaking is an expression of grace. We should never take it lightly. The fact that God has talked. He's a talking God, and then He gives people ears to hear what He says. He's the God of all, and yet He wants Himself to be known. And this is a book so that we can know Him. He has spoken, and He does so in this book through Zephaniah. 
the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. So he is the recipient of God's word and he is the proclaimer of God's word. What we call those guys are prophets. They get lots of titles in the Old Testament. One of them, the oldest one, is a seer. So we see that in 1 Samuel when Samuel comes on the scene. It says he was a prophet and then they say, well, he was a seer. That's what they used to call the prophets. All that that means is that he was able to see things that others couldn't. See things about the future that others couldn't. But he could also see things in the present that others couldn't. The prophets were kind of like those who'd had their minds unplugged in the Matrix. You ever see that movie in the late 90s, The Matrix? How many have seen that, just so that I have an idea? Okay, so it's this sci-fi action flick that most of the world, almost all the world is living in the sunshine. Just going day in and day out, they think all is well, and they don't realize that they're plugged in. It's all in their brains. They're actually, in a literal world, living in a dark, on a dark planet with no sun. It's all, all the cities are in destruction, and the computers have taken over the world, and all their minds are plugged into this massive machine. But the computers, they're, it's like the humans, their lives are the batteries for the computers. And so all their brains are plugged in, and the computer's able to do its work, but the people think all is well. You and I right now would be thinking all is well, but there's a few people who've had their minds unplugged. And they take it on as their mission to unplug as many minds as possible, to let them know how enslaved they are and how in darkness they are. And all the while, those who, are waiting, who have been unplugged are waiting for the one this messianic figure who is supposed to ultimately, according to the prophecy, the oracle, unplug all the minds and overcome the computer. But the point here is that they had eyes to see. They could enter into what was called the matrix. They could lay down, get their minds plugged in, and enter into this world. It looks just like you know, driving in here. That, that's the matrix. And What's going on in your everyday lives? That's the matrix. It's what's going on in our minds, but we're all interacting and living as if all is well. But then there's these people who show up in the world who have eyes to see the real darkness. They have eyes to see how enslaved people are. And that's what God gave these prophets. And that's when they're speaking, they're speaking to a people that don't realize they're enslaved. They don't realize they're plugged in. They don't realize that there is some evil power controlling them the devil. But there's some who have taken on a mission of seeing minds set free, hearts changed. And the authors of this movie, of course, were playing with a lot of Christian themes, but this isn't a movie. This is reality. And we're living in a world with a bunch of people that don't have eyes to see, and the prophets were seers. They were able to look inside and see, you're enslaved, you're in darkness, you need a savior, you need satisfaction, you need to surrender yourself to the sovereign of this universe. That's the world of Zephaniah. He's a prophet. A prophet of a covenant. It's not just random voices. He's coming in to talk for God on behalf of an agreement that Israel had made with God. 
If you remember, way back in the Garden of Eden, God set Adam and Eve aside, and He said, you are my image bearers. So when people see you, they're supposed to see me. I'm supposed to be on the throne of your life. And as people encounter the image, they're to understand what the image points to. And then he said, Adam and Eve, I want you to fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. The Garden of Eden ever expanding to fill the entire world. That was the purpose of humanity. As image bearers to take the glory of God to the ends of the earth. The purpose was not, you're an image of God. No, you're an image of God. And humanity bearing the image of God would take his image The Garden of Eden, ever-expanding, fill the earth, multiply and subdue it, so that a kingdom husband and a kingdom wife would come together and fill, and all of a sudden you'd have kingdom families that would become kingdom community, and the kingdom community would expand, and with that, the image of God, a testimony, a witness to the greatness of God would fill the whole earth. It was missions. And then the fall happens. And missions takes on a new form where it's actually confronting hostility. And missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist now because worship doesn't. The end is not souls, the end is God. To make much of God. That people would all of a sudden get aligned with what they were created to be. Imagers of God to all of us having the capacity, unique capacity, to display the greatness of God. Now Adam failed... But God raised up Abraham. In the midst of a people, 70 families were told that grow out of the Tower of Babel. 70 families, and he picks one of them. They're going to be called Israel because that's what Abraham's grandson Jacob gets renamed, Israel, and then he has 12 sons. This one man was not set apart for himself. The world was not here for Abraham. Abraham was here for the world. Through you, Abraham, the world would be blessed. That was always the goal, that God would create a people, namely Israel, through whom, operating as imagers of God, or as it says in Exodus, a kingdom of priests, a bunch of royal sons who would serve as mediators, of God's presence to the world, and in doing so, display God's presence to the world. But not just some priests, the entire nation of priests. You'll be a kingdom of priests in the context of the whole world. Now what Israel is called is the Son of God. Israel is my firstborn. Exodus 4.22 Israel is my firstborn. Well, that's what Adam was. He was the Son of God. Exodus, uh, Genesis chapter 5 God made man in his likeness, in his image, and Adam gave birth to a son in his likeness, in his image, and named him Seth. So there's some relation to the sonship idea that just as Seth was a son of Adam, Adam is a son of God. And Seth was a unique son of Adam, wasn't he? Because Cain came on the scene, Eve thought that he was the special one. By the special one, I mean Genesis 3.15 kind of special one. The offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. There's a demonic evil power that was part of the garden sphere. This God hostility that sought to deceive and overcome. Jesus calls him a murderer from the beginning. 
And right before, before even Adam and Eve are judged, God intrudes and gives that gospel promise hope. The offspring of the woman. That Eve would have a child, a male child, who would crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent would somehow crush his foot, his heel. That the serpent who's on the ground would, in that process of dust stomping, skull crushing, it would be bring wound to the offspring of the woman, but ultimately a head blow to the serpent. And that's the hope of the Old Testament. So we have in Genesis 3.15 that hope. In Genesis 4.1, Eve gives birth to a son. God has given me a man-child. I have got a man-child with the help of Yahweh, is what she declares. She's thinking, I believe, I've got him. He's finally come. But he proves by his own murderous activity that he's just like the serpent. And so when you get to Genesis 4.24, you need... She, has, she knows her husband again, and she gives birth to another son and names him Seth. And she says, I have gotten an offspring, an offspring to replace Abel because Cain killed him. Well, the last time offspring was mentioned was Genesis 3.15 promise. Cain killed him. He wasn't the offspring. She needed an offspring to replace Abel. First John tells us, indeed, Cain was a child of the devil. That's how he's tagged. He was a child of the devil. He wasn't a child of Eve. Biologically, yes, but not spiritually. But from the garden, then, these two family trees grow out. There's a family tree, a very small remnant, that is putting their hope in the offspring promise. And then there's all the rebel. And in the context of Genesis the rebel become the mission field. The mission field through whom the world, to whom Israel is to be a blessing. So into that context, we've got Israel, the agents of blessing, and most of Israel are rebel just like the rest of the world. But God graciously, rather than wiping them out, He's a God that doesn't, he doesn't quickly wipe out rebels. The very fact that we even have a Bible, it's given to people after the fall. It tells us the story of what happened before the fall, but the Bible, the, the earliest book we have is that, that the Bible tells us as a book is Genesis 5.1. These are the generations of the book of Adam. And it includes this long genealogy that takes us all the way to Noah. Somebody after, after this time, I believe, gave us Genesis 1 and 2. I think it was probably Moses. That means the Bible's given to rebels like you and me. And that's that God wants Himself to be known and even the sinners to know Him. That's the background to this book. So He gives us a prophet. The very fact that there's a prophet is mercy. We continue. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Could you actually preach for 30 minutes on one verse? I think, you, I think you might be able to. Zephaniah means Yahweh hides. wonder why his mom and dad named him that. 
Yahweh hides. I have some thoughts on it, but uh, before we jump there, we've got to assess this four-member genealogy. None of the other prophets give us four persons. The most we get is two, usually just one. He's the son of this man. But with Zephaniah, it's like we want to connect him to Hezekiah. So we get our first glimpse, I think, of the messianic hope. Josiah, in the days of Josiah, who is the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah. How many have heard of Hezekiah? He doesn't have a book named after him. But if you go in and tell your people, turn to the book of Hezekiah, they'll look really, really hard. Okay? So he doesn't have a book. He was the 13th king of Judah. What's the common theme of all the kings of Judah? There's a common trait. And it's not that they're all wicked. They're all tied to David. Now, between Hezekiah and Josiah, who of 20 kings, remember there is a, a long history, and this is why I have this up, so that I can... And actually, I think I'm going to have to... I'm going to do something else. Um, and that is just open it up in a different program because it will let me search easier. I'm just going to put a list of the, first of all, a picture. Here's a picture of Israel's history. The big bar is when the kingdoms are united. There's no Israel and Judah, there's just Israel. All 12 tribes under one king. Saul, David, Solomon. But then remember, Solomon sinned and went south with... I mean, who wouldn't go south with a thousand wives? That'd, that'd just be really hard. Um, but they were all from different faiths. They turned his heart away from God, and God ripped the kingdom apart from him. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And the ten tribes in the north had ten different dynasties. That's the top blue line. And it went from 970, which was the end of Solomon's reign, all the way up to 723, right up there. But in Judah, so Israel, that they're called Israel all of a sudden, and Judah is what the southern kingdom is called. And 20 kings, 10 dynasties, 20 kings, 1 dynasty. And both Hezekiah and Josiah are the, of these 20, they are the good guys. During both of their reigns, revival struck Judah. Now what we learn is that Zephaniah is preaching during the reign of Josiah which automatically, from what we know, because by the time we get to this prophet, we've already read Kings in the Bible. And what we already know then is that this is an age of reformation. And that's why this book is all about the basics. Because he's talking to a whole bunch of people who, between Hezekiah and 
Josiah, what you have is Manasseh and Ammon. So, I'm just going to turn in my Bible over to 2 Kings 21 really quick and take a peek. 2 Kings 21. What do we learn about these guys? Anybody ever heard of Manasseh? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Anybody? Thumbs down. Bad dude. 2 Kings 21. So, 2 Kings 21. Here's what we read. 2 Kings 21, verse 6. And Manasseh burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums with, and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house that the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Asherah was Baal's girlfriend. And Baal was the chief, the chief god of the Canaanite pantheon. So there's this ring of gods that the Canaanites worshipped, and we only have Canaanites left because the judges, period, didn't kick them out. There's all this evil abounding, and now the king of Judah, who's supposed to be carrying the hope of the Messiah in the line of David, he takes... Baal's girlfriend, and puts an idol of her right in the middle of the temple. Not the greatest move. And I will not cause... So um, we continue in verse 8. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them. If they'll come back, if they'll come back then I will not destroy them like I did their northern sister, if they'll just heed the law of my servant Moses. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So remember when in Deuteronomy chapter 9, God told Israel, it's not because you're really good, not because of your righteousness, but because of the wickedness of these nations that I'm driving them out. Now Israel has acted even worse than those nations. So what does God say he's going to do? Verse 11, Because Manasseh king of Judah has committed these abominations and has done these things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also sin with his idols, therefore, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. That is the age that Zephaniah was born into. He's most likely born during the reign of Manasseh. So a name like Yahweh hides very well could have been the prayer of his mom and dad. Protect this little life. He's in the line of David. May, may he be like a light shining in the darkness. Now not only that, Zephaniah is the son of Cushi. Zephaniah 1, he is the son of Cushi. Now, Cushi appears to be related to something that, we've, that we see later in the book. First of all, chapter 2, verse 12. You also, O Cushites, 
will be slain by the sword. Who are the Cushites? Cush was in North Africa. So it's the realm of the Ethiopians. Now, not only are the Ethiopians going to be judged in this book, they're also the only people that are given as an example of who's going to be restored. Look over at chapter 3, verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. After the day of the Lord, pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. And then here's the only example that he gives from beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Zephaniah is interested in the Cushites. In fact, he uses them as the only hope, I mean, as as the vision of hope that all the other nations of the world are going to be part of the great restoration. Well beyond the Jews. He's including the Cushites in this. And Those two other mentions, along with the fact that he's the son of Cushy, suggest to me that very likely he's a black Jew. And he has such an international focus in his book because somehow, some way, he's in the line of David, but he also has connections with Ethiopia. Now, three of my kids come from Ethiopia, and before I was ever moving toward international adoption in Ethiopia, this book was one of my favorites. This was one of the things that astounded me, that that jumped off the page to me, that, wow! Now, I know that the Ethiopians, they have a very long heritage thinking that Haile Selassie, who was their last emperor, died in the 70s, I think. Correct me if anybody knows for sure, but died in the 70s, and they believe he has a bloodline that goes all the way back to Solomon through the Queen of Sheba. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that the Queen of Sheba ever slept with Solomon. It says she was awed by his greatness, and he gave her presents, and she gave him presents, and then she went back to Ethiopia. But the Ethiopians to this day think that there's a connection there. I have no idea whether that's true, but that's one of the Cushites that we are aware of that had connections with the house of David. Zephaniah has a global vision. And it's one of the things that makes this a beautiful book for for the church. So, Cushite in the days of Josiah from the line of Hezekiah. So, Right away, I think this is supposed to... It's a very dark age that Josiah, at age 8, becomes king. His father Ammon gets uh, murdered. And he's the heir to the throne at age 8. And so here's what we have. At age 8, he takes on the throne. In his 8th year, so at age 16, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his 12th year, so 12 plus 8, he's 20. He started removing all of the Canaanite Canaanite pagan shrines and emblems from Jerusalem. And finally, in his 18th year, he finds the book of the law. Remember that story? 
he finds the book of the law in the temple, and that's most likely the book of Deuteronomy. And all of a sudden, he's like, we're nowhere near what God's calling us to in this book. And God's Spirit begins to blow through the people, and they begin to humble themselves before the Lord, and a sweet revival cuts across the land. Now, trying to pinpoint in a 40, no, in a 30-year reign, 31 years, when Zephaniah showed up is a little bit difficult, but I think because I smell Deuteronomy all over this book, it's most likely happening at the very beginning stages, very beginning stages, probably early 622, which is the year that the book of the law was found. But there's still so many smells of sin in this book, it's very clear the reform hasn't taken over a lot. But there's darkness. There's political twistedness. There's deceit, and there's a lot of oppression. This is a book written for a poor people, a people who feel abused, by their leaders, a people who don't feel loved, who feel forgotten. And God raises up a prophet to give them hope. I think it's a book that our people in our own churches can benefit from. So now we begin to his actual message. And what the first, from verse 2 to verse 18, which is the day of the Lord part, and that's the only part I ever thought was important, And now I recognize this is just a setting. This just provides the context, this judgment, a context for the message of hope that follows if people will heed the summons. So the setting for the summons to satisfaction, a call to dreadful silence in light of the nearness and nature of the day of the Lord. So we're going to begin in verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. And I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This is a global picture. Zephaniah starts out on a big scene. Before he ever focuses in on Judah, he starts out very broad. And the images of him... Gathering everything, very specifically, everything from the face of the earth, namely man, beast, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, the rubble, or perhaps a mention of idols, with all the wicked who worship them. Now, when you look at these words, this this type of massive cataclysmic destruction... My in-laws just drove back from Colorado. And people began to say, this flooding is like the biggest flood we've had in a decade. No, it's the biggest flood of the century. It's the biggest flood of a thousand years. No, this is like a biblical flood. So that's what they were telling. My my in-laws heard that. This is a biblical flood, but it didn't reach up here. Um, This says, from the face of the earth. Does that sound like anything that seems familiar? In Genesis chapter 6, same type of language we read. Um, 
Yeah, Genesis 6, verse 7. God decides that He's going to send judgment and He's going to do so on the entire face of the earth. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made him. Now if we remember the Noahic flood, God said, okay, I'm putting the rainbow in the sky to show that my arrow's not pointed down, it's pointed up. I'm going to preserve the world, even though they deserve, it says in, in chapter 8, verse 20, I think, Noah and his family come out of the ark, and God says, as he smells the aroma of the burnt offering, which is a sin offering, Noah needed to offer a sin offering, and the aroma is going up to the heavens, and God says, I have chosen to not destroy the earth because mankind's heart is evil from his youth. There's only eight people left on the planet. And God says the hearts of man haven't changed. Even Noah's heart is no different from everyone else's except for grace. Genesis 6 verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's why he was different. But the heart, the state of his heart was no different. And so if God didn't put up a rainbow and remind himself, I'm not going to wipe out the entire world again, by a flood, it would have happened over and over again. But in creating the Noahic covenant, he created a context wherein mercy and the gospel could penetrate. We would have had the flood a hundred times over between Noah and Jesus. But he put up that rainbow saying, not yet, not yet, not now, so that he could retain a context of mercy. Retain a context where good news could come through Israel to the nations. I'll utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. But as we're going to see, if you just let your eye turn down to verse 18, this judgment's not going to come in water, it's going to come in fire. So what we're talking about is the fully, the, the big definitive end of the age. The end of this old age in Adam. I'll sweep away... Now look at this series, man and beast, bird and fish. Now if you were to go back to Genesis 1, you would see that the fish, then the bird, then the beast, then man. This is exactly the same order as we see the creation of all terrestrial life, but it's in reverse order which suggests that when we think about judgment, we should think about decreation. It's not moving toward life, it's moving back to chaos and darkness and death. That's what the flood was. The land came out of the water, and then came up the watermelon, and then God put the moose. What happens with the flood is that all of a sudden the waters come back over. It's a return to the original makeup. It's a decreation. It's going backwards rather than forwards. And before we get to new creation, there will be an absolute, utter destruction of the old. At least complete new creation. 
But we know that there's, there is this kind of an overlap when we're thinking about the world. Here's the old age of Adam, the old age of darkness, the old age where sin reigns, and it's still going on today. You and I find ourselves somewhere in this middle section. But what has happened in the person of Jesus is that the future has come into the present. So here's His first appearing, and here's His second appearing. Right now, He is reigning, but we don't see everything under submission to Him, says Hebrews 1 and 2. So we're still awaiting His second appearing. And when that happens, that's what we're talking about right now. And when it comes, the old age will be definitively over. Now, how it's all going to work out, time-wise, is a little bit muddy. And it was, I think, for the prophets. For them, people like Zephaniah, he looked up to the future and what he saw was the Rocky Mountain landscape. And if you've looked at a landscape of the mountains, it's at times difficult to assess because certain peaks are bigger, but they can appear close, even though they might be farther away, but they're bigger. And it's difficult when you're down on the ground to actually assess which is, which is closest, which is going to happen first, and it's just big and beautiful. God wins. And we are kind of like flying in the helicopter now that Jesus has come and we're able to assess the timetable a little bit better. For some of the prophets, I think this whole overlap of the ages where the new covenant, the new creation intruded into the present, it was a little bit more squished. Like they weren't defining everything. When we go all the way back to Moses, I think he was holding like an acorn. And when we get to the New Testament, it's like an oak tree. But Abraham and Moses thought he was holding an acorn, and he knew it would grow into an oak tree, I believe. Some people will say Moses thought he was holding an orange seed, and it grew into an oak tree. I don't think so. I think when he arrived at the Mount of Transfiguration and finally made his way into the promised land that he wasn't allowed to go into before, Moses is in the promised land with Jesus, And he sees him, and I think he was able to say, Yes, you're the one! Zephaniah would be able to say, You are more beautiful, more great, more awesome than I ever anticipated. But I did anticipate you. But when you're holding an oak, an acorn, you can know it's going to grow into an oak, but you can give it to any scientist and they won't be able to tell you exactly what that oak tree is going to look like. No amount of scientific investigation can tell you all of the beauty, all of the years, all of the damage, storm damage, all, how many leaves it's going to have. You can't tell, but you can tell this, it's not an orange. It's not an orange tree, it's an oak tree. So when we're looking at the prophets, it can get a little bit muddy from this direction. But like Pastor Tom was saying, He read Scripture after Scripture, and I I could show you some from the Old Testament that suggest, indeed, I mean, these guys were preaching to a people that didn't want to hear. 
The old covenant was an old covenant of condemnation, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. It was an age of faithlessness, says Paul in Galatians 3.12. The old covenant age was not of faith. And so, who were they writing for if they weren't writing for their audience? Most of them were not going to listen. They were writing for us. So that we, living on this side of the cross, might be able to look back and understand more clearly who we are supposed to be and what we are hoping for. So, I will utterly cut off mankind from the face of the earth. Cutting off language, and I forget how it's worded, destroy is how I think the NIV has it. Very literally, cut off. That's covenant language. Covenants were initiated by a cutting ritual. So you remember how animals got parted, diced in half, and and one of the parties, usually the smaller party, would have to walk through the pieces, and he would be saying, I promise to live for you, and if I don't live for you, may may what happened to these animals happen to me? And that imagery, this is the language of covenant. Even though in our English Bibles we usually translate it, he made a covenant. In the Hebrew, it's he cut a covenant. And what it is, is it's the, it's a, the image that was used in making the covenant depicted the, the potential of the curse. What would happen if one or the other of the parties fail to keep their promises? They'll get cut off. Cutting off of mankind, that's not a good thing. Now we get specific in Judah. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. Full stop. Remnant, throughout the prophets, is a good word, except here. It's not good to have a remnant of Baal. God, I think I'm the only one, says Elijah. No, I've I've preserved 7,000. That's a remnant. But here, there is somehow, in the midst of this age of of reformation, Josiah's doing, God's using Josiah to do something. Calling people away from their sin, but there's still a holdout of those who are for Baal rather than for Yahweh. But usually it wasn't cold turkey, I want nothing to do with him. It was, yeah, Yahweh is one of the planets in my solar system. I see him, look it, look it. But the people were in the middle. And God will have none of that. The word we're going to get is he is jealous. Rightfully so, necessarily so, and lovingly so. Jealous to be the blazing center in our own solar systems. Not one of the planets circling around us, but He is the center of all that we do. A remnant of Baal. Now, in both the ESV and the NIV, they do something here that makes it a little bit hard, I think, for us as pastors, as teachers, to put it all together. 
It all has to do with little words called conjunctions and where we put them and where we don't put them. Now, if you read the ESV, it says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And then it has just a comma, and then it doesn't include an and before those. And it has those who bow down, those who bow down, those who have turned back. Everybody with me? So it makes it look as though, to me, the remnant of Baal and the priests, namely, what I'm talking about is those, those, those. Look at the NIV. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. That is, the very names of the idolatrous priests. And then it's got a line, those, those, those. So the NIV would suggest you don't have two groups, you've only got one group. It's the remnant of Baal worship, namely those bad leaders, those those religious leaders. And then he unpacks who those religious leaders are. But there is no and, if you're looking at the ESV, after the remnant of Baal and the name. No, there's no, no and there. So the NIV has that correct. That the, the, the idolatrous priests with the priests, I think, are unpacking who the remnant of Baal is. But then if you look at those three those statements, those who do this, those who do this, those who do this, every one of those has and in front of it. Which suggests to me that the remnant of Baal is bigger than the, than the religious leadership. It's the priests, yes, and those who bow down. And those who bow down and those who turn. Which means this is a message not just for us in the room. It was for everybody. It wasn't limited to the religious leadership that was the problem. So if you say, my dad, Dave DeRoshi, that says something different than my dad and Dave DeRoshi. It's the difference between one and two. So here... What I'm wanting you to do, and I just have written it right in my Bible, the remnant of Baal, I crossed out my and, and then after priests, comma, in my ESV, I have and those who bow down, and those who bow down, and those who have turned. And then I'm going to interpret it that way. So where was this Baal influence? So it's an idolatry. There is something other than God mastering the heart. Where was this influence? Number one, it was among the religious leadership. These are supposed to be the guardians of worship. They're the ones who are supposed to distinguish the clean and the unclean, the holy and the common. And they're the ones who are supposed to teach the word. You brothers in this room would be equivalent to this group. Guard the sacred deposit, Paul says to Timothy. Don't let it depart. Don't go to the right or to the left. People are counting on you because they're looking to you to hear from their God. And if they don't hear from you, faith will not be awakened. And without faith, they cannot please Him. 
Faith comes by hearing the word. Be preachers of the word. Align your lives, not just teaching the right thing, but living the right way. Set your heart like Ezra to study the word of the Lord, to practice the word of the Lord, and then to teach the word of the Lord. Be those kind of people. Now what's really wild, and you don't see it in the NIV, it blurs two groups, but in the ESV you can see it. So in the NIV it just has the very names of the idolatrous priests. But in the ESV you see it, it says the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Now that's a little bit weird. But the word idolatrous priest, it's only one word in Hebrew, it only shows up three times in the Old Testament, and in every time it appears these are guys from outside of Israel. So think about this. Would you invite a Jehovah's Witness pastor to come preach this next Sunday in your church? We're going to see that they're worshiping Milcom, who was the god of the Ammonites. So there's this Ammonite god, and it looks like they've actually invited the cult. We would call the Jehovah's Witnesses a cult. They've invited the cult pastor into their church to worship with them alongside in Jerusalem. And then you've got the normal Jewish priests, who themselves are also false teachers and not following the Lord, apparently. So... I, to call them idolatrous priests, and priests sounds a little it sounds like the second group isn't idolatrous. No, they're idolatrous. So you have foreign deity, pagan priests, and then idolatrous Jewish priests. And these are the guardians of worship. And they're just allowing everything to get so mixed and so warped. Guard who you let be in your pulpit. Be careful who you let teach a Sunday school class. Do you know their character and do you know their beliefs? It's not only them, it's those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens. God put the stars in the sky, we read in Genesis 1, to mark seasons and times not to be worshipped. The gods of the nations always worship the stars. It's as high as they could look and God made the stars. Astrology is sin. Astronomy can be worship. But when you're worshiping the stars, even, even the fact that it says they're going up on the roofs suggests to me it's almost like a Tower of Babel type thing. I want to get closer to God. So there might be some kind of like uh, self-pride. I'm, I'm getting higher than you are. I, I'm not certain, but it's wrong. Number three. Those who bow down and swear to Yahweh, and yet swear by Milcom. I'm so glad the ESV left the the prepositions. You don't see that in the NIV. Notice it says, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also swear by Molech. Milcom and Molech, same exact deity. It's the god of the Ammonites. His name means king or sovereign. And that's going to play in later in the book. Because God, Yahweh, is going to be called the king. M-L-K, Malak. That's what God does. He reigns. He, Malak, reigns. And Molech, or Milcom, their king, 
is the God of the Ammonites across the river. The very God that Israel had defeated when they came around. Remember, so they're going around. Trying to remember what I have. I think I can bring this up. Let's see where I... Let me just throw a map up here. That one, this one. So here's the divided kingdom. All the... I'm just going to pages in the book. So this is Judah. This is all, the, all that's left when Zephaniah is around because all the northern kingdom where Israel is, all that got taken out by Assyria because of sin and because they failed to listen to the prophets. So, But you remember when Moses was leading Israel around, they came around from the south after they'd already tried to go in from this way and they failed and then they got 40 years in the wilderness down here. So they came around, they went past Edom, and they came up here into Moab and Ammon. Milcom is the god, or Molech is the god of the Ammonites. And who beat him? When Moses and the people came around, who won? You tell me. Israel won. Yahweh won. So if you already know that this god has been judged, why do you keep going back? Pornography has no end. There might be something there that you like. But every time you get involved, it hurts your marriage. Every time you look at these things, it gives you guilt. And God's declared judgment on it, but you keep getting sucked in. As if God doesn't really mean when he says the kingdom of God will not be for such as these. The sin is really serious. And he's declared judgment on it, and Israel was going after gods that had already been defeated. Getting sucked in by these alluring, deceptive promises. But notice, notice the difference here. Swearing to Yahweh, swearing by Milcom. Do you see that difference? What would that mean? I make promises to you. I'll show up tomorrow and have lunch with you at noon. Yes, I'll coach Little League this coming spring and fall. You make a promise to someone, but you make a promise before or by your highest authority. As God lives, so I will do this. That's what it means to swear by someone, verses 2. 2 is just who you're making your promise to. You made your promise to your wife that you would love her for richer, for poorer. Through sickness and in health. Till death we do part. But when you made that vow, God was right there. You made it by him. He was your highest authority. Or at least he should he, he was there. But what was on your mind? We make promises, or some of the promises we make are in the presence of others. There's witnesses. And to make it seems as though Yahweh is the one who's always supposed to be the ultimate witness of the promise. 
And some promises are serious wherein we would invoke, we would invoke a high authority. So you, you see, are you really going to do this? On my mother's dead grave or whatever people say. And what you're saying is, I'm serious about this. Their highest authority, their highest motivation, the one who they were calling on to hold them accountable to the promises they were making to Yahweh was actually not Yahweh, but Milcom. They were swearing by Milcom, suggesting that he was their highest authority. It was, his, it was dread of him that was motivating them in the highest sphere. And it was desire that he would supply and sustain that was influencing their decisions. So what, how does this work for us? We have all different kinds of gods. In the West, our idolatry takes on different forms. I would bet in Morocco, it's highly Muslim there, so the influence of tribal deities might not be, I'm thinking of Matt, who's maybe God's calling there. Vietnam, is that where you're going? Is that right? Tim, where? Taiwan. So I imagine you could still see, see this kind of influence. In the West, we don't see it as much an actual tangible form of an idol. The deception that Satan takes is by making football that or making a job that. But what's at stake here is when I make a promise to someone, what's my highest motivation? What's ultimately driving me? Is it a pure conscience or is it an evil motive? Is there something other than God's glory whether I eat or whether I drink or whatever I do for the glory of God, something other than for the glory of God that is motivating the heart. For them, whatever they could get from Milcom was apparently the highest level. He was their king, and Yahweh was secondary. He was one of the planets in their solar system, but not their sun. So we want to try to boil this down. How can we help our people understand idolatry? Now, I'm just going to pause here and offer a very quick, ah, okay, I don't know what I just did. Um, I found it. No, not the right one. There it is. You can't quite, you might not be able to read this super easily. Um, this would be well worth taking a full hour to go through, but I'm just going to walk through it to let you see what made idolatry back then so attractive. Number one, it was guaranteed. We worship a God that we can't see. The idol you can see, you can touch, you can smell. Pardon? And you can manipulate it. Manipulation was a massive part of ancient idolatry. And we're going to see that in number two. Um, but think about it. Have you ever prayed and you feel like God's not there? 
so, oh, I'm, not, I'm just going to not wait. I'm just going to act. And you still don't feel a peace in your heart. You've been trying to figure out what am I supposed to do, this way or this way, and God's not answering, so you're just going to do it. Are we willing to wait on the Lord? No eye has seen or ear heard a God like our God who works on behalf of those who wait for Him. But the, the now-ness of idolatry made it so appealing. Number two, selfish and works-oriented. Here's the manipulation element. I want, therefore I engage in worship. Baal was a fertility god. That meant if you needed your crops to grow, you went to Baal. If your animals were struggling to produce, you went to Baal. And if you had not yet been able to participate in God's purpose of great commission, earth-fillingness, namely have babies, then you went to Yahweh. Sorry, you went to Baal. In the prophets, we actually learn that Hosea chapter 2 is where you unpack, uh, this is unpacked. Israel was viewing all of their goods, um, their bounty, their crops, their abundance as wages earned. That's what it's called. Wages earned from the gods. So it's materialistic. It's manipulative. And God will have nothing to do with it. But are you ever prone toward either self-righteousness or materialism? So what you have is, the idea is that I did something through feeding the gods, or as we're going to see, through engaging in sacred sex, they were trying to get, appease. Pornography and lust is not off the map in idolatry. It was part of what it was. Because they're trying to gain, to, to appease deep desire, to fill an empty void. It was easy. Do you ever find it easier to please men rather than God or to love yourself over loving others? Is that ever your life? There was ethical relativity. No covenant obligations in ancient idolatry. As long as they did their idol thing, they could live however they wanted to. And the gods didn't care. But to live for God is not easy. It'll, it'll take you dying to all yourself. At the core of our being, deep selfishness, and God's looking to overcome it. This is not easy, this walk with God. So just give up and do what's easy. It's called idolatry. Convenient. Anywhere, anytime, do you ever find that following God gets in the way of your own agenda? God, ugh, Passover's coming up and I've got to make this trek to Jerusalem. This is not what I want to do. Or it's ugh, Monday night football starts in just a little bit and I see this woman broken down on the side of the road. Uh, okay, I'll pull over. And you pull over, not because it's convenient, but because it's right. 
God is creating a system that is right, but not necessarily convenient for our own agendas. We've got plans. We think we know where we're going and what we're going to do. And all of a sudden, God enters into our world and He says, let me be the plan maker. And sometimes they won't tell you to the last minute. And we don't like to live that way. Idolatry was about any green tree and under any green bush. You could worship your idol anywhere. You can go into the shower and do your thing anywhere. But it's not convenient to open up your Bible at Caribou or to take your lunch hour getting to know your cubicle mate. Living for God isn't necessarily convenient, but it's right. Normal. This is something that might take a little expansion. But are you ever prone to follow the crowd even when you know the majority is wrong? If you're prone to swing because the masses are going there, you very likely would have been prone toward idolatry. In the ancient world, there was polytheism, lots and lots of gods, syncretism, where you mix and match religions, and pantheism, where... The gods are in everything, everywhere, and there's no distinction between nature and the divine. And God intrudes into all of that and says, I'm the only one, and I'm different than you. But people begin to make gods out of everything. The job can become the god. Your marriage can become your god. If God takes your wife away, where is your hope? If you've been longing for a child and all of a sudden that baby is gone, do you lose all hope in God? Your people are going to be there and you've got to be able to guide them through where is their mastery, what is their hope in? Idolatry is so rampant and people don't even recognize it. And it's the same problems that have always been here. Logical. When you're sick, would you rather see a specialist or a general practitioner? Yahweh says, I'm the God of everything. You need provision for a house? You're out of a job? You need to see your marriage turned around? You need greater provision so that more missionaries can be supported in your church? God says, I'll do it all. And then Baal comes in and says, you're struggling with crop growth? 24-7, that's what I focus on. You're going to go to the God who's in charge of everything, every life, in every place. The gods were usually localized in the ancient world. So you've got the gods of the hills and the gods of the valleys. Naaman wants to take dirt with him, Naaman the leper. He wants to take dirt with him back to Syria because he had this vision, I think, that Yahweh was, had boundaries and he was the God only of Canaan. So he wants to worship the God of Canaan, so he's got to take a wheelbarrow with him back to Syria. But it was logical. Are you going to put your hope in money? Put your hope in your pocketbook? That's logical. That's where the world is going. But it's a radical thing to say, I'm going to move into adoption. Some of you grandfathers, I'll throw this in. Will... Support our child when they're moving toward adoption for the first one, but in less than a year you say you're going to go back and to do it again? 
It already cost $40,000, and now you're going to add another 40 that turns into 60 in less than a year? This isn't faith. This is foolishness. And, and how do you know? The first adoption worked. It didn't make our family too chaotic. But now you're going to bring in another one? What are the chances that this kid isn't going to have so many problems and make all of our family chaotic and mess? Your step of faith isn't logical one bit. But we couldn't get away from it. And we felt compelled to move in this direction. And brothers, the church rose up $100,000 of adoption costs in a year and a half, and they were gone. We have no adoption debt. Because God moved in, and it didn't make any sense. But He's not a God who makes sense. You want to leave and go to Taiwan and live trusting other people to support you? Yes, because this is what the church is supposed to do. And it doesn't make sense, but the cross is foolishness. But idolatry, it doesn't mean that God doesn't work through logic. I don't want to get that. That's not what I'm saying. But there's times where doing what is right is not always convenient or easy, normal or logical. But it's right. And idolatry can fall in there. And then the last one is, it was sensuous. Idolatry in the ancient world was loaded with sexual appeal, along with smells and all kinds of other stuff. And that's as much a part of our culture as it ever was in any other culture. In fact, increasingly so in ours. Um, Matt's wife, remind me her name? Melissa just shared in church on Sunday about how the Muslims look at our Western world and just see it slithering in serpent-like sin. So much of it has to do with our ability to affirm nudity. And it's appalling in the Muslim culture. And even for us as believers... Man, we can just grow so um, unattuned to how much of it is filling up our living rooms through our televisions. And we have to guard our hearts. So important to guard our hearts. Idolatry was such a big part of this world, and it's not foreign for us. When we read this book, we can't distance it and say, well, we're not there. This is, this is it when we're talking about fail to guard the sacred deposit, self-righteousness, desiring to get up higher to touch the gods, hypocrisy and what's false motivation, wrong motivation. And then the last one, those who have turned their back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Does it get any more basic than that? Jesus said there's only one way. Many are going the other way. It's a wide way. This way, the way following me is narrow. And this group had turned their back on where God was going. God was walking that way and they're going this way. 
And not only that, they're not seeking Him or inquiring of Him. These two words together are often used in the context of prayer. So they're prayerless. How prayerful are you? God is just saying, let's go back to the basics. Leaders, are you guarding the sacred deposit that I've given you? Is your heart self-righteous and worshiping things that you shouldn't? What's mastering your soul? Who's your highest authority when you make promises? And then, are you following me? This word seeking is going to show up. It's, it's the main command in the book. There's two main commands. The first main command is seek the Lord. You can see it over in chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. And then it clarifies what kind of seeking. Seek righteousness, seek humility. This book has just taken us back to the basics. In a world for a people that haven't been following God, Zephaniah is just here calling them back, and he's not doing it in a hard way. He's just saying, look at your hearts. Strip out what's not supposed to be there and just start following God. Become more prayerful. Seek right order. That's what righteousness is. And then seek dependence on God. Not a self-righteous pride that thinks you've got it all together, but, but he's looking for broken men who are willing to say, I don't have it all together, I need you. Seek humility. So those first six verses um, simply lay out why they need to listen. Why they need to stop talking and be quiet. That's what we're going to see in verse 7. And then he's going to talk about the day of the Lord and we'll pick up there tomorrow morning. But it's just, a, to me, this is such a beautiful reminder. Even as I'm teaching right now, it's just reminding me to quiet myself, to make sure that God's at the center. That's where I want Him to be. Am I being prayerful? Am I seeking? Am I following Him? We follow Him by knowing where He's going, and He tells us right here. How much time am I spending here to be able to follow Him? Do I hear His voice? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for giving hope through a, here he is, a, in the line of David, a prophet whose, his very words give us hope. The fact that he's from David gives, gives hope that the promised offspring was still going to come, that you hadn't wiped out all the line of David, that in darkness there is always light. Morning is coming. Father, I pray first for these brothers and ask that you would help them look deep into their own souls, even as they're reflecting on people in their own congregations, but help them look into their own souls and offer over to you areas of self-righteousness, poor guardianship of your word and your people, areas of pride, areas of prayerlessness, and where they haven't followed you. God, this is so basic, but how much we need to be remembered, reminded of the basics. We're asking for your favor and your grace the rest of this night and over the next two days to meet us 
through your book. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.